Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Indy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame has had three practices since our last podcast, and we've been able to digest nine more minutes of highlights from those practices. Uh, The lack of access has us longing for a better understanding of what Marcus Freeman's defense will look like at Notre Dame. So we're turning to former Notre Dame defensive coordinator Rick Minter uh, to help show us the light and maybe give us a better understanding of what this defense could become. So, Rick, thanks for joining us. Yeah, enjoy it, fellas. How are we doing? Doing well. First, I wanted to get a sense of what you knew about Marcus Freeman's defense at Cincinnati and how do you think that will fit at Notre Dame? Well, first of all, it's a a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, I'm a big fan of Luke Fickle down at Cincinnati. You know, of course, that's where I made my mark. Uh, When they hired Luke five years ago, I thought he was a a good hire at the time. He's certainly proven more than Everett's been a great hire, but as, in, as importantly as, as Everett, because he and, he and Mark D'Antonio are very, very close. And so they build their staffs very similarly. From the ground up, they get guys that very seldom leave them. They're all loyalists. And, uh, and that's the way uh, Luke started off building his staff. So one of the first hires, because <clears throat> Luke Fickle and D'Antonio were mentor-pupil related I mean, they kind of are clones of each other. <clears throat> so when when Luke was coaching the linebackers at Ohio State, his pupil was Marcus Freeman. And they've since become lifetime friends. And so they followed the you know each other's careers. And Marcus, of course, was over there at Purdue when Luke got the job. And I think they're in the midst of a turnover and everything else. But it was an easy move for uh, Marcus to come join Luke Fickle. So – that's where I came in because I would, you know, visit uh, UC two or three times a year, sit around and talk. And I'd already known about Marcus Freeman. I think I remember when he graduated from high school. <laughs> but uh, I've started watching these guys. And as you saw Luke build that program, it really is like I did it, like D'Antonio did it, now like Luke's doing it. Very defensive-minded oriented, tough, hard-nosed, physical, run the ball. That's kind of their M.O. And uh, it starts with the what Marcus Freeman did on defense down there. 
certainly very similar to what Luke instilled. But, uh, you know, they played a whole lot of four-man line, and then they played uh, this 30 package, you know, this odd front package that uh, really got after people. And over the last two or three years in the American Conference, if not in the whole nation, they were, you know, they were top tops up in the in the in their conference they were the top defense both in points allowed yards allowed which put them up very high in the country so i think it'll be a mix of four down philosophy to be a mix of some uh three down philosophy particularly on your nickel downs and on your passing downs rick um when when you do that and, and you're teaching it to a new team um how difficult is that and do you have to change the way you recruit? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think the modern day defense is kind of coming out of the four-two-five, where they can have a hybrid playing that weak side defensive end. So they may call themselves a thirty-four hybrid, yet they're going to be in a four-two-five structure. I would say sixty to seventy percent of the time, okay. and then you're going to. Uh, kick out into a true three-man front. Now, you might substitute. You might just play the same guys. And then that hybrid rush backer, you know, he might be the kind of guy who's uh, really a hybrid linebacker more than he's a hybrid defensive end. So he may jump up in the box and be a kind of a – now you can create 33 looks, 33 nickel looks. So it kind of depends on who they uh, put in certain places. But I would like to think that most teams today have the ability to be a, a four-two-five with true four-three principles of running your defense. That you can mix in some true thirty-four principle and be kind of a nickel thirty-four odd, where you've got this fast nickel out there and that hybrid outside backer, most likely to the boundary or to the weak side of the formation, could be a stand-up half-end half linebacker, and then this thirty-three package you could get into by bringing that rush backer into the box, playing him like a well linebacker or a stack backer, I guess would be the better term, and then create all kinds of havoc right there. So I think they're going to be a multiple front team, uh, but it, at the heart of it, it's going to be about, you know, blocking and tackling and taking on block, shock and shedding, and uh, being technique, fundamental sound with good hard nose toughness and effort flying to the football. That's what I always saw when I saw, Cincinnati practice and play. If if you're an opposing offensive coordinator and you see all these different looks, I mean, is this problematic or is it, you know, is this more difficult for you to prepare for? Is it more difficult for your quarterback to read what to do and figure out what to do at the line of scrimmage? You know, Eric, when I was uh, a coordinator at Notre Dame, uh, both times really, but particularly that last time with uh, Charlie Wise, I was still a little bit more of a four-down guy. Uh, your offenses are even more exotic today than they were then. Uh, but I have since, since that time, back in 07, 08, really, really bought into the, the 34 defense. And then what I could do then is start creating some of these same discussions we're having right now uh, so I think that any time you get a guy's hand out of the dirt from four down, you begin to cause problems for the opposing offense because there's so many more things you can do with multiple looks. There's more things you can do with guys that are standing up. 
Now you have to be big enough and strong enough and physical when a team wants to go big boy ball on you, like Brian did against Alabama, where he beefed it up, went a lot of 12 personnel and, and attacked them that way. You have to be the same, uh, Marcus, as, as they battle heads in spring. His, his concern then would be, well, what do we do when Brian goes big on offense? Goes, puts those big tight ends out there. So there are matchup problems, pro and con. Uh, I think if a team wants to stay spread on you and stay kind of playing this fastball offense, they'll cause a lot of problems by keeping either four hands guys in the ground or three hands guys in the ground with other athletes, you know, standing up and around because you never know, you know, you usually bring four guys on, on the average pass rushing play. And if it's four down nine times out of 10, you know, where the four rushers are coming from, you know, who to declare as your middle linebacker. Therefore your, your offensive line can take care of those five guys. When you've got three down guys, there's other issues that come into play as to who the center and the quarterback need to declare as the most likely fourth known rusher, as we would call it. Uh, and then who's that other linebacker that the old line. So in a 32 front, you could say that the deep, that the old line is going to block it like a bare front. They're going to block the three down and the two inside backers, or you begin to slide your protection. If they have overhang defenders, nickel and, or that weak outside linebacker, so 34 creates just more thought processes. Doesn't mean you can't be beaten or that you can't be had, but it just is more difficult. When you got a good old four down, pretty looking team over there, quarterback knows who the four dudes are in the dirt and they know who the other linebacker is or which way to slide the line and look at the scans and everything else. But when you go three down, uh, and then occasionally start standing those two ends up on open edge offenses. It just becomes more that the offense has really, really got to be on the same page or you could, you could school them a little bit on defense. Look at the success that Clemson's had. And I kind of liken that uh, Venables is really one of the better guys. And I think that Marcus Freeman has shown over the last couple of years, he falls into that same type of guy, you know. He's stout, he's sound, he's solid when he wants to go four down big boy ball. But then they can get pretty exotic when they want to go with three guys uh, hand down and create all kinds of, you know, uh, stunts and movement and twists and turns and things like that. Rick, as a defensive coordinator, if you want to be more multiple in your defensive looks, does that require you to have more versatile players and teach them to do more th things? Or can you maybe use guys that are – only good at specific things, but have very specific roles for them and rotate them in and out more often. Well, I, in a perfect world, you want to be deep enough at these quality programs that you can play a lot of guys, you know, it's just called your rotation, but the rotation's one thing just shows you depth. Uh, but the other part of your question eludes to the fact, what kind of guys are you going to try to recruit to fill this out? Are you looking for, you know, uh, four, three defensive ends that are, you know, six, five, six, four, two sixty and better. Uh, or are you looking for, uh, a six, three, 235 pound outside linebacker. Who's got really, really diversified skill sets. Uh, I like recruiting the guys or building enough package around guys that can really run. So you want excessive speed on the field. You can do a lot more with speed. Just make sure you can hold up when a team wants to go big on you. 
but you want guys that are these hybrid type guys that you, you know, that can play linebacker, can play outside linebacker, can heads a wide receiver, can play a little bit in space, not excessively, but a little bit in space. Uh, you know, the, the RPO game, particularly in the day when the RPOs first came into play and it was more screens, tunnels and bubble type screens. What really changed the math for us on how to defend them was when we started putting big dudes out there. And, you know, the old statement about big guys beating up little guys was kind of coming into play there. You say, well, they got all these fast guys out there. You got to have speed to match. You do if you're going to be excessively or, or uh, pretty much expressively a man team. But if you're going to mix in good zones and quarter flat defenders, it doesn't hurt you to have a guy like, like Notre Dame had out there last year in the flat on that strong side. A dude was an All-American. He had some size to him now. He had some girth and some size and some strength. And the screen game changes when little guys that you think running all these little scat routes have to become blockers out there in the screen game. It matters that you got big outside linebackers or nickels or hybrids out there that can destroy those blocks. Rick, on both times when you came to Notre Dame, when you followed Gary Darnell and when you followed uh, Kent Bear, yep. were you able to do schematically in year one what you wanted to do, or did it take some time? I, I seem to remember in 2005, you guys couldn't play nickel much because you just didn't have the defensive backs. No, we just uh, – the, the cupboard – you know, the cupboard really was bare for us on defense uh, on on the 05-06 When I go back to my 92-93 team, yeah, we were loaded. I mean, we were as good as anybody in the country. The style of ball was different in the 90s than it turned out to be in the 2000s. So we were defending different animals, if you will. But, uh, no, we had good players. Almost every kid got drafted at Notre Dame back in the mid-90s and the early 90s. Uh, you had a multi-round draft, even some of our backups, you know, made it on NFL rosters, the, the, the recruiting and everybody would tell you this, not complaining now that it's over, but it was down, it was down a little bit. You know, I had two inside linebackers when I got there and it was, uh, uh, Brandon Hoyt at the will linebacker spot and Corey Mays and Corey had never started a game and he's into his fifth year. And he had a banner year, had a great year for us, ended up playing in the league for a number of years. Uh, uh, Brandon Hoyt was, uh, was a high school athlete, like, a, a, I don't know, was it a running back, quarterback or something? He wasn't just a bona fide linebacker, but he made himself a good player. Same thing, typical Notre Dame guy, you know. But we, did, we, we ended up playing Maurice Crum out there as kind of our nickel backer. I called it like an Apache backer just for a name because the A stood for adjuster. And uh, so he was our adjust backer. After one year, going into year two, Charlie asked me one day, well, okay, we lose Brandon and we lose uh, Corey Mays. And he says, who are you going to play at Mike linebacker? Because, again, the backer room was really not very talented at that time. And I said, I'm going to move Mo Crum in there. He said, you're crazy. You can't play Crum. There's not big enough. Well, he had a really nice career playing for the next three years inside linebacker because he, he's just a player. But we finally got Mike Richardson and those kind of guys to play nickel. 
But no, we did not have. Now, the scheme-wise, I wanted to be a four-down guy, so we were really looking to be a 4-2-5 type team, and we couldn't even be that. We had to be a 4-3 hybrid team where Mo was the field outside linebacker all the time, and the will stayed to the boundary, the, the Apache backer, the adjuster stayed to the field, and we went, for, we went at it from that way. But uh, I, the what's so sad for me and maybe my future there or Notre yeah. Dame fans in general, I would love to have gone back there a few years later after I left there because I did change a lot of my defensive thoughts after 07, sitting out and visiting with Rex Ryan, uh, continuously. And then I went to Marshall in 08, 09. And, and in fact, played BK when he was at Cincinnati and I was at uh, Marshall, but the, but the package we've developed, you know, in those last 10 or 12 years now is so much more suited for the kind of game you get today, which is the spread offense and the athletic quarterback and those types of things. So yeah, if I had it to do over, uh, I would have probably been a little more 34-oriented at Notre Dame, but we just didn't have the personnel for it. We did try to implement a little bit of it, but we weren't wired for that. I wasn't wired for that. I was a four-down guy all the way. Rick, when we got our first chance to talk to some of the linebackers on Notre Dame's team this spring, um, we were asking them questions about Marcus Freeman's defense, and they talked about how um, they got a sense that this defense will be easier for them, or at least that was their opinion, that they'd be – a little bit more freer and there wouldn't be as many rules to follow and some of the things that they had maybe struggled with. And these are guys that were mostly backups in Clark Lee's defense. Does, is that something that you think would ring true? Or do you think they just don't, they haven't learned enough about Marcus Freeman's defense yet to, to be, uh, to know all the rules. You know, I think Marcus played the position. Okay. And he played it at a high level, played it at Ohio state and they've always played good defense at Ohio state. And then, uh, uh, as he and Luke put together that package and then Marcus took it and ran with it. I think you have to trust that guy that he knows what to tell his players. And if he felt better being a guy that not necessarily freelances, but had a little bit more freedom, a little bit more, uh, less of this, more of that, uh, just trust your instincts and play here, play there. Uh, I've been around, that's ironic. I, I don't, I, I'm looking forward to watching this practice here at Vanderbilt as we're talking about Clark Lee. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jesse, my son is now the coordinator for Clark Lee. And uh, so I catch a little glimpse of what it would have been like to play under Clark uh, as a coach or a player, hearing some of the things coming out of the way it is down here now. Again, very, structured everything about Clark is structured and that's what this program here needs uh, and you could tell that he is a ultimate detailed fanatical guy coaching linebackers right and he, he's even said that so I'm not telling anything behind Clark no, I, back. I, watched, he, I, would, I was at his coach's he, clinic one year and he spent like 30 minutes talking about eyes like just how, yeah. how to train your eyes <laughs> the thing about it is there's a uh somewhat of a young linebacker coach here right now. Uh, I forget his name. We call him eggs. He came out of the NFL, real young guy. And so Jesse hired this guy that uh, had been through the Ravens and came out of the Buffalo bill system and hadn't been in college in a good while. I think it's a great thing that Clark Lee is here as the head coach 
a defensive-minded guy, and he's not telling Jesse what to run. He, he advocates certain things, certainly, as the head coach would do. But Clark is hands-on. You know, the old saying goes, if you ever want to be an assistant in college, right, don't ever coach the same position that your head coach once coached, <laughs> right? But now that's what Eggs is going through. But that's good for him because Clark Lee is an absolute detailed, fanatical inside linebacker coach. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned that about what's going on at Notre Dame, because now that I know a little bit about Clark and I know Marcus probably better than I know Clark at this moment, I'll get to know Clark better. Mm -hmm. I can see the differences in their personalities would allow just that type of thought process where Marcus says, Hey, don't get too upset about this. Let's just do it this way. I'll give you a chance to kind of let you feel your way through it. Blah, blah, blah. I could see that happening knowing Marcus. And that did not occur probably under Clark because he sees the game through different lenses. You know, Rick, when um, Brian was looking to hire defensive coordinator, he said, you know, he was going to go out and get the best one. He, he didn't want to change his recruiting patterns, but he was open to somebody that had different ideas than Clark did. And, I, and, I, and I'm just wondering, Jesse's in the same position. You referenced it a little bit before, you know, how do you kind of come into a program, especially at Notre Dame where there's been really good success the last three years, Vanderbilt, not so much, but, right, right. but, but Clark was successful. And so Jesse walks in the door and says, well, look, Clark, <coughs> I think we were doing this wrong. I mean, how, how difficult is it to kind of be bold with your own ideas coming in as a coordinator in that kind of situation? Um, you know, I, 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 I was very honest with Jess. Um, two months ago when he took the job here, I said, in this particular time in your life as a young defensive coordinator into the SEC, that's going to be a big challenge. I said, I believe it's a plus for you to work for Clark Lee as a, a kind of a co-defensive guy. In other words, Clark is that guy because Clark's a front seven advocate. In other words, he's an expert on the front seven plus coordinating uh, entire defenses. Jesse's coming at it from the back end. He's a secondary guy. And I've always said that secondary guys and front seven guys won't always see the game exactly through the same lens also. So as you're coordinating against Alabama and, and Lane Kiffin and, and all these challenges that they're going to have here, it's kind of like you need all the ideas and the brains you can get when you're just starting this structure down here. And so I think it's a plus that he works with Clark and that Clark while leaving him alone for the most part is still going to have his eyes very heavily glued to the defense. Whereas five years from now, you know, you might be tired of that or 10 years from now you say, Hey, I, I want to be a defense coordinator and work for an offensive guy, right? Who seldom ever comes into our room. Yeah. I was fortunate that I had that a majority of my time. I worked for a defensive head coach one time, really in my entire career. Everybody else was more offensive oriented and you can have not, you know, not necessarily more autonomy, but you just feel less threatened, less people looking over your shoulder when you're doing it that way. And so uh, when, when Brian hired Mike Elko, he struck gold. I mean, Elko's a good coach, did a nice job. Mike's still doing it down at A&M. 
And when he first sought out to uh, replace Elko, you know, I, I think initially it wasn't a slam dunk that he was going to give the job to Clark. He was going to look around a little bit, but he was sold on Mike Elko's way of doing things. He really wanted the continuity to stay the same if all possible because of what they had been through the previous two or three years of up and down. And uh, that played in Clark Lee's favor, this continuity factor. And then once he interviewed him and set him down and let him do his thing, then he hired the guy. And then lo and behold, he did a great job for him. He proved that he did the right thing by seeking continuity and taking a shot with a younger guy at that time. Clark had to be, what, 35 years old. And uh, uh, one-year linebacker coach in your own program that you entrust him to run the defense and he did it and he did it at a very high level and then now when he now those players have been through four years of Elko slash Clark Lee's system some of the good players you know took off through the draft and he still wants a a good guy or or me you know a similar type guy but Brian's probably more open to a little bit more uh, either fresh ideas or a little bit different approach or let's go get the best guy and hear what he has to say about the differences that his style will bring. And that's probably what Marcus is. I mean, BK is a little bit like Lou Holtz. Remember BK started off on defense years ago. Lou Holtz started off on defense. So Brian has a very good idea what he sees on a good defensive football coach and a, and a good football team. I've always thought that when I knew Marcus, I just text Brian. I said, listen, you ought to go hard after this kid down here at uh, uh, Cincinnati, Marcus Freeman, because I, like I said, just happened to be around a few years and watched them coach and play and then sit in their staff meetings and meeting rooms. And that, you know, Notre Dame was the first place I thought about because they lost Clark and Marcus I knew was kind of getting ready because that's the price Luke Fickle pays when he decides to stay, he's going to start losing his good ones because that's just the attrition of, of college football. So he goes out and hires, uh, uh, I think, one of the best rising stars in the game, which is Marcus Freeman. And I'm sure he'll let him run his stuff. There may be a day he brings him in and says, hey, listen, a little bit less of this, more of this. What do you think? But, you know, that's just between Brian and Marcus. But I think it's a good marriage. Uh, It's not like the, you know, the act to follow. I mean, almost every day in college football this day and age, it's just year to year. And uh, they had a great year last year. They made a great run. And, you know, Brian's smart enough to say, well, well, that was good with what we had, what we did. But maybe we still could use some fresh ideas and a little bit different way of doing things. And that's the open-mindedness of Brian Kelly. I think he's one of the best in the business. Rick, when, when Brian needed to hire a new safeties coach this offseason, he yeah. uh, looked from within and hired Chris O'Leary, who's been on staff for a few years as an analyst in GA. Uh, you actually had uh, Chris on your staff down at Florida Tech before Chris yep. came to Notre Dame. What kind of impact impact do you think he can make at Notre Dame, and why do you think he was able to maybe stand out, even though he doesn't necessarily have the type of experience that, a, that you would assume that safety's coach at Notre Dame would have? Uh, Chris O'Leary's got the it factor. He really does. He's a bright-eyed guy. He's, you know, he was raised on offense, so I think he sees the game kind of like a quarterback sees the game, very bright eyed guy, inquisitive, ask questions uh, as a player's guy. When I say that, it's a player's communication guy. 
very contemporary in his thoughts, uh, very out front, knows how to get along with people, uh, has a great demeanor about himself, happy to go to work every day. You'll never find that guy down about anything. Uh, he's a quick learner. Um, and I had him, you know, he was a player at Indiana State when I worked over there with my son, Jesse, in 2010. When I got to Georgia State in 2016, he had already graduated and Jesse had hired him as a grad assistant. And that ended in 16. I go to Florida Tech in 17. Everybody gets let go. I go down and tell the head coach at Florida Tech, which was an Indiana State guy. I said, I want to hire Chris O'Leary. I mean, I'm going to put him with safeties right now if we can just get him here. And he didn't have a job, so we got him. He stayed one, came to me, said, hey, do you know somebody at Notre Dame? That got that ball rolling. I called BK myself and said, I got a star for you here now. I'm telling you, I don't recommend a whole lot of people, but Chris O'Leary is a young star. And then he goes up there. They didn't hire him. They offered him an off-the-field job. He balked, you know, and we laughed about it, like, why would you turn that down? And, and uh, so he gets up there and then pays his dues for three years. And if you just think about guys that are on that staff right now in an off-the-field role that he went head-to-head -head against and basically beat them out for the job, tells you everything. And uh, But uh, it was so funny when uh, uh, Marcus got hired up there. This was before it even came up about Chris. As soon as Marcus gets hired, I text Marcus and say, listen, there's a young guy up there named Chris O'Leary. Look out for him. Take good care of him. He's a he's a rising star. And I didn't even know at that moment about the potential to be the safeties guy because I think the other guy hadn't declared yet to uh, Texas just yet. Right. But, uh, but once all that happened, then I, I shot BK a quick text. I said, hey, please give O'Leary all the consideration possible. You know, you have to have help to get in the door anywhere. All of us do. We stand on somebody's shoulders all our life. But Chris O'Leary had help getting in the door at Notre Dame. Once he's inside, he's on his own. And he has made his way. I mean, he's found his way to the top. And nobody else got that done for him. He got that done for him. And I appreciate Brian giving him the opportunity. I know he won't be disappointed. Rick, last one from me. You mentioned, you know, Marcus coming in with new ideas in the context of BK. What about when you're the coordinator? You've got these two up-and-coming coaches in O'Leary and Mickens, and then you have this guy, Elston, that's been there, Mike Elston, who's been there since with BK since before he was even at Notre Dame. In the meeting rooms, are you looking as a coordinator? Are you looking for ideas from them? How much can they help you become better, a better coordinator? Um, I don't know what Mike is like or I'm talking about Marcus, uh, it was a little bit of a different dynamic at Cincinnati because Luke was in most all the meetings. Oh. So there, the dialogue was a lot between Luke and, uh, uh, you know, Marcus. And they had some other good coaches on the staff there also that, you know, had input, shot it out there. And But I, I think Marcus is a very accommodating person. I think he's got his own mind, his own brain. He'll, he'll make the decisions. But he'll always make a staff guy feel welcome and feel like he's a part of it. And it'll be a collaborative effort, even though the final decision, if not the majority of the brain trust, is going to be Marcus Freeman. He's going to always spread credit 
He's going to give his guys their due. He's going to make them feel inclusive because he is the ultimate people person. And it was just with, you know, good high moral standards about being a D coordinator. Uh, I don't think Chris will be, I think he'll say, coach, I understand what you want here, but what would you think about me trying to do it this way? What would you think? And I'm sure Marcus would say, Chris, if you think that's a, a good way to do it, then go for it. Let me see what it looks like, et cetera. So O'Leary's not going to challenge, but he's going to be inquisitive. He's going to have a mind of his own. Now, Mick and Marcus worked together at Cincinnati, so yeah. they've already had an existing chemistry. And I don't know Elston all that well, even though uh, I knew him back when, you know, just coming and going a little bit when he was down there with BK at Cincinnati. But uh, so Mike's been around a long time, you know, so he's a, He's a team guy all the way. He's going to just want to do what's best for Notre Dame. Uh, you hope when you hire guys, you use the expression, you hope that all these guys want my job someday. And that means that they're uh, inquisitive. That means their their personality A's a little bit. They, they, they don't want to be just yes men. They want to assume responsibilities. And I'm sure there will be some, uh, you know, when you look down the road into the crystal ball, some of these guys on defense will be perhaps the next Marcus Freeman or whoever. But uh, but for now, I think the chemistry will be good. I think uh, who knows how long Marcus will be there. You know, we all can talk that way. Nobody wants to say, well, don't shoo him out the door right away. The track record has been somewhere between two and three years, sometimes one. Elko got out of there after one. Uh, not necessary for a head job, but Marcus's next job will be a head football job somewhere. And, uh, and I think it would be based on product continued positive production. And uh, I hope he stays there a good while because I think Brown will be very happy with him. All right, Rick, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us today and I hope you get a chance to enjoy some Vanderbilt football while you're there. Next. All right. Appreciate it guys. Some enjoy your music too. Yeah. We'll head downtown here later. <laughs> All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. This week we're going to focus on Notre Dame's early enrollees. Um, and for a quick refresher for those listening, there's 14 early enrollees. Um, Tyler Buckner and Ron Paulus at quarterback. Wide receiver Lorenzo Styles Jr. Tight ends Kane Barong and Mitchell Evans. Offensive lineman Rocco Spindler, Blake Fisher, and Caleb Johnson. Defensive tackle, Gabe Rubio. Defensive ends, Devin Apu and Will Schweitzer. I'm still not comfortable saying Devin's last name. Uh, cornerbacks, Ryan Barnes and Philip Riley. And safety, Justin Walters. So, Eric, the first one I have for us is which of the 14 early enrollees will start a game first? The the You know, a lot of it is where is their opportunity as much as it is talent. Right. Um, and – you know, I kind of swirled around with the thoughts of the two two of the young offensive linemen, strangely enough, Spindler and Fisher. I thought about Lorenzo Styles because I think he's super talented, but he's blocked uh, yeah. from starting. So I'm going to go with Philip Riley at cornerback. I think there's an open competition there, and I, I could see somebody like him, you know, being able to be the Clarence Lewis of – uh, 2021. I'm not predicting that that's going to happen, but I think it's the most likely. Yeah, I think that's a good guess. I was I was kind of 
considering the same options. I actually went with Ryan Barnes in the secondary. I think he could play both corner and safety, which I yeah. guess gives him even more opportunities. I'm not sure where he'll, where he'll land as a freshman, um, but he's my favorite of the early enrollees at the essentially what I would consider the, the thinnest depth charts, and those are in the secondary. I, I think there's a chance that Rocco Spindler or, or Blake Fisher could start a game or start a couple games on the offensive line, but um, there, there, there are so many bodies there. Not that, that uh, those a lot of the guys there are maybe that much more talented than Blake and Rocco, but um, it's just it's going to be an interesting competition to see how that plays out. And obviously, those guys have um, we've seen some clips of them already in practice, whereas you don't necessarily see a, all these other guys um, in in some of the practice clips. So the offensive linemen are certainly getting plenty of work. Um, next question we have is from or not from anyone. It's my question: uh, Who will record a sack first? You know, I look at the defensive end freshmen as really developmental players, and I think they're going to be really good, especially Devin Apui, or if we get his name right, I have to restudy that. I'm, I'm trying to learn other name, a different name today. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to go with Gabriel Rubio. I think he's going to get on the field faster, and I think he's big and strong enough to break through, especially if it's in a game in the fourth quarter where maybe you don't have the opposing first team offensive line on the field. I could see him at six foot five kind of pushing his way up the middle and getting a sack. Yeah, we're in agreement there. I had Rubio as my answer as well. I think uh, they're certainly deep on the interior defensive line as well, but I do think uh, it's probably more of a likelihood that he could get some time inside. Um, earlier on the, than Devin and Will outside. And, and Devin and Will, I think, are, are bigger projects, too, like you mentioned. I don't know that they, they're coming to Notre Dame as game-ready as Gabe Rubio, who's pretty uh, well-put-together kid for for his, uh, his age and, and I think uh, is pretty advanced uh, as a football player. Next one, who will catch a pass first? Well, we, we don't have a lot of candidates there. <laughs> we have the two tight ends, and we have – Lorenzo Styles, that are the early guys. And I love Lorenzo Styles, so I'm picking Lorenzo Styles. Yeah, I'm going with Lorenzo Styles as well, even though predicting wide receiver production hasn't exactly been the easiest thing um, in the last couple of years. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he had a, a pretty good impact this freshman year. I think he's one of my favorite kids in the entire recruiting class, early enrollees or not. Um, I, I think there's a chance like Cambron could be it as a, as a, one of the depth tight ends getting in there. And obviously if they're going to use a lot of tight ends like they did last year, though, I'm not as sold that that's what the offense will look like um, that, that maybe there's a case for him, maybe getting a, a goal line touch or a red zone touch um, early, early in the season. Um, but I'll, I'll go with Lorenzo Styles Jr. As well. Next one, who will intercept the pass first? Well, we have some freshman corners. We got a freshman safety and Justin Walters. And I'm going to say Justin Walters. I think, you know, there's going to be opportunities again. They're going to want to get him if he's capable. And I, I think he will be. They want to get him on the field. You're losing Kyle Hamilton next year. You want to get as much experience in case there's an injury. In a case, Kyle Hamilton is a top 10 pick. You want to get him on the field a lot. It just seems like sometimes in these games, late in games, there's a lazy pass that's easier for a safety to kind of get than a corner. So, Justin 
Walters. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. I think I, I think we've seen a couple of interceptions uh, uh, shown to us from from practice video. So he's certainly been active early on this spring. Um, I'm going to go with Ryan Barnes again, just the, as the DB that I, I really like. Um, and so I, not necessarily uh, veering too different from that, although I, I think, I mean, any of those three could be decent candidates of uh, getting some action um, potentially with the, the thin depth chart, like I mentioned earlier. And last one, who will score a touchdown first? Um, I had two guys, and I, I, I hate to use styles for every answer, <laughs> uh, but he's ultimately going to be my answer. But my second choice is Tyler Buckner. I could see him getting in late in the game and breaking off a run and getting into the end zone. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's that that is certainly a possibility. I think I, I last year we did a similar we had a similar series of prop bets. I don't think we did it for the early enrollees. I think we did it for all the freshmen. And uh, the freshman who ended up scoring the touchdown was. Do you remember who that was? Uh huh. Jordan Botello on a blocked punt. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> none of us guessed that. So you never really know where this could come from. It could be a special teams touchdown. Um, obviously, Jordan would have been my pick for the first 15 yard penalty. <laughs> he might have got that too. Although certainly Jordan Johnson had had one uh, when he came into a game at one point too. Um, but for for this, I'll, I'll go with Kane Barong. As I mentioned, maybe maybe in a multiple tight end sets, he can get on the field, and maybe there's an opportunity there. Um, so a little bit of a wild card there for me, although. Um, similar to you, I think Lorenzo style is certainly the best offensive weapon of these early enrollees um, with a chance to, to play, but I'll, I'll go with a little bit of a wild card and take came wrong. And maybe, maybe he'll block a punt too. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hanson NDI. First one I have for us is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fran 13. Thoughts on Kendall Abdul Rahman transferring? I think it's, you know, seems like a pretty logical move for him, man, for Notre Dame. He he's a guy that's a really talented, fast guy. You know, Brian Kelly was really excited about his speed potential. He was a, you know, a running quarterback. Uh, for Edwardsville, Illinois High in the St. Louis area. And it just never translated to either running back or wide receiver or return man where those were the kind of possibilities. So I think him just getting a fresh start somewhere else and getting some playing time, I think that's going to be good for him. Yeah, when I was thinking about this question, I was like, Notre Dame tends to get some of these quicker guys who you think maybe could end up being slot receivers or being some sort of offensive weapons and they don't tend to pan out. So I was like, man, am I, should I be worried about Lorenzo styles? Cause I think he's awesome. Uh, but Notre Dame hasn't had a ton of guys like him that have had success. And um, certainly uh, um, I, th- I don't, I don't think Lorenzo styles jr. Will have the same fate that Kendall Abdurrahman had in the program, but it was, it, it kind of struck me as a bit, a bit odd. He didn't, Kendall didn't get much traction at either wide receiver or running back. Um, he was at best the fourth string running back. Um, and so, uh, I, it, not surprising at all that he would look elsewhere and, um, hopefully he can find somewhere that, um, needs, needs his skill set and he can find a path to playing time. Next question is from Chris Fleck at Chris Fleck one. Will Notre Dame stadium be at full capacity on nine 11? 
That's a tough one in that Notre Dame has been playing this a little bit more conservatively than some other schools. For example, for the Blue Gold game, it's only going to be the Notre Dame community students, um, faculty and staff, and players, families, as it was during the season last year. Ohio State, for example, is going to have 20,000 fans in the stands there. Um, But I think – I'm going to say yes, and this is why I, you know, I think there will be enough other sporting events that have been played to capacity before Notre Dame gets there. They're going to have their student population vaccinated, so they're not really going to be concerned about outbreaks on campus. And I think there's going to be a system in place where you have vaccine passports, which kind of act as an easy pass if you're familiar with the toll roads where you can get in quickly and then rapid testing for people that can't or do not want to have the vaccines where they can, you know, go through that process where it's a longer thing. It's like paying with cash at the toll booth. Um, There's always a long line for that and there would be a long line, but you would be able to get everybody in that way. And if you had a, a system that worked for those, those things, then I think, yeah, I think, you could have it for 9-11. I don't think you will consistently have sellouts, but I think for that first home game, there's there'll be enough people that will be willing to roll the dice. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not comfortable with predicting that it will be at, at full capacity because I, I would think Notre Dame would want some sort of dry run that was somewhat similar. Like the, the blue and gold game just isn't going to be any, anywhere close to what a full capacity stadium will be like. And so obviously they know how to like, have a full stadium it's not like a new concept but to do that under different guidelines whatever sort of protocol they will have in place um, I'd be curious if they maybe ramp that up during the season obviously there's the the, I imagine the want to be able to uh, get as much revenue as they can um, after missing out on some last year but um, I I'm not really I'm not sure yet that I I would feel confident predicting that it will be I think there's a path for it to be um, but Notre Dame has, like you mentioned, has been pretty, per, uh, pretty cautious with a lot of the, the it's, it's, uh, protocols, uh, <laughs> including with us, um, in terms of letting, letting people on campus. So we'll see how, how that all plays out in what, uh, five months from now. Next question we have is from Brendan at very piratey last year. Tyler was all aboard the KBO blowing up many a timeline with the latest dino news this year. Crickets. What aspect of last year's team do you see similarly fading away this year? Well, I also got into the KBO and I was, I was really happy that they had games because during that early part of the pandemic, it really felt so abnormal and it was a little bit of normalcy seeing people playing baseball. And so the dinos were not my team. I was uh, a big fan of the deuce and bears. Now to the question I, I, if I understand this correctly, I would say the part that's going to fade away is contact tracing and quarantine, but I don't think that's what Brendan's looking for. <laughs> no, I think you mean like the football team. Yeah, yeah the, the phase of the team. Well, I meant within the football team, and we're not going to be writing about that aspect. <laughs> oh, about right, that. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, because that was parts of every story. We were getting sure. COVID reports like an hour before the game, who was out. Yeah. Um, I will say the offensive line hype, you know, they were really good last year. They deserved every bit of publicity they got. 
Um, you know, if it weren't for Jarrett Patterson's injury, been interesting to see if they could have pulled in the Joe Moore award. I think they're really talented and they're going to get better as the season goes on. They're not going to be great coming out of the gate. Yeah, I think I think Brendan was just trying to chide me a little bit for not being all about the dinos anymore. Um, so I think he was just throwing some shade at me. I don't know that he was <laughs> he was referencing the coverage and more. So, so I so I really delved <laughs> a little bit too deep into that question. No, no, I, yeah, I just I just think he meant about the team in general. So I think the offensive line is probably still the right answer, or I, where the offensive line isn't going to be as strong as it will, and it will fade away a bit. The, the strength of the the team won't necessarily be the offensive line. It can be good still, but I don't know that it will be great or as good as it was last year. Um, but, uh, I, to be, to be clear, I am still a Dinos fan. I thought about wearing my Dinos hat for this podcast, but since only Eric will see that, I thought that would be a little bit cheesy, but, um, I, I'm still rider Dinos, even though, uh, the season, I believe they're one and three off to a, a bad start. It's interesting. I was not aware because this is what, this would be on my second season of following KBO. There's not much turnover. It's pretty much like the same team as last year. They don't have a lot of uh, roster turnover unless guys either retire or guys are given MLB contracts. And there were, there was one guy, uh, Sung Bum Na, I'm sure I, I'm not great at pronouncing the names. I thought that he could maybe. His middle name is Bum? <laughs> well, that's the hyphenate. I'm not exactly sure how they refer okay. to him, Sung Bum Na, but yeah, yeah, it's a, he, he was really good. He didn't play like Bum, that's for sure. He was, he, he was a really talented player. Um, but he didn't get an MLB contract. And I thought I saw some people speculating that he might, but he's still back on the team. But they're not off to a hot start. It, it's also harder to watch them. They're not on ESPN anymore. Um, and I annoy plenty of people with all my White Sox tweets. So um, I've, I've cut the Dinos tweets out of my diet, but I'm sure there will be Dinos tweets in the future. You can count on that. All right. Next question is from Chris W. at Rakes of Malo. Is It's December, and you're saying what a great season from Tommy and company. What does the offense have to look like to earn? look like to earn that high praise? I think we would see a team that was top 15 in pass efficiency and they were 43rd last year. We would see a team that went from 102nd in the country in red zone offense to top 20, um, scoring from 30th in the country to top 15. And then we would be saying, wow, comments about the wide receivers. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that you would go numerical in your in your answer, so I just went more sort of generic. Um, I think Jack Cohn getting NFL draft buzz, um, not necessarily a high pick, but a guy who will get drafted. I think not only will that mean that he has played that he played well in this coming season, but um, that means that Reese would have evaluated Cohn correctly in, in pursuing him as a grad transfer. Um, the offensive line. Won't, wasn't a liability. That would be a review that you would want at the end of the season to, um, for a, a great season for Notre Dame. Um, that they found touches for both Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree. Michael Mayer's an All-American. And then, like you mentioned, the wide receivers, a couple of wide receivers emerged as problems um, that the defenses really have to worry about on a weekly basis. Those would kind of be things that I would be looking for to, to qualify the offensive as having a great season. Next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib43. Does the return of the RPO this spring coincide with 80% of the offensive line leaving and with it the perceived ability to just line up and run whatever they want? Or does this allow an experienced quarterback to help an inexperienced line? Or is the RPO just modern college football? Okay, Tyler, I'm going to ask you a question before I answer this because 
I, to my eye, they didn't run a lot of RPO the last couple of years, which would coincide with this question. Correct. But when was it, when was it stated that it was absolutely coming back? And I don't think it was. Time? I think, I, I think that is, uh, that is um, hyper analysis of the clips we've been seeing. There have been some okay. RPOs in the, in the clips that we've seen and people wanting to extrapolate on those on those okay. clips of what, what, what could be to come for this Notre Dame offense. Okay. So I'm answering this on the premise. Mm-hmm. I, here, here's what I'll say very generally. I, I think the one thing I think that people will like about Tommy Reese and the way he runs the offense in year two is he's not married to what he did last year. He did what he thought was best with the personnel last year. And if RPOs and, and uh, play action pass at a higher percentage is better for him. He's not going to be shy about doing that and, and doing different tendencies. I think we're going to see tremendous growth in Tommy Reese. I know I'm not answering the question uh, because I don't, I haven't heard from anybody definitively other than the clips uh, that this is that they've committed to a certain percentage of plays. But, um, but I think that, Good offensive coordinators are going to use their personnel to the best, and th- this team is constructed very different. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, similar to you, I, I have no idea how much RPO they want to instill in this offense um, this coming season. I imagine you. Ha- I mean, you need to. You have to. Tommy Henry has to find out if Drew Pine and Jack Cohn can run it well before he decides if he wants to put it into the offense a lot. Right. And I think that's probably part of what we're seeing. Um, I don't think Ian Book was great at it, um, at least the version that Chip Long had him running. Um, I, and I think so they, they were running more RPOs with Chip Long than they did last season with Tommy Reese. Um, and I think that was probably part of the re- reason that I, I just don't think Ian Book was was really comfortable doing it. Um, it certainly helps the offensive line on our RPO plays if we're going with the theory of why, why it would make sense to, to instill this in the offense this coming year. Um, those – those are sort of easy blocking assignments as long as you're not going too far downfield. Yeah. Um, and, and as long as the quarterback is getting rid of the ball quickly to make sure that you're not as an lineman getting too far down the field. Um, I, I think that it's usage may depend, obviously depends on the quarterbacks, but I think it also depends on the ability of the, the receivers to catch the ball short, and make something happen. I don't, in, in theory, this group would be better at that than what Javon McKinley and Ben Skoranek were at last season. Um, so those, I think there's reasons to believe that it could be become a part of the offense, I don't know. I wouldn't go out on a limb and say it. it is going to be become a part of the offense yet because, I mean, I'm not even sure if Tommy Reese would, would be able to tell you for sure right now if that's going to be how significant a part of the offense it will be. It might be a goal of his, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to ask him stuff like that uh, later this spring. Next question is from Greg Flamong at Greg2126. Would you rather have Notre Dame run all the play action and RPOs to your heart's contentment but Braden Lindsay and Kevin Austin are out again for most of the year, or they run the same amount of play action and RPOs as last year, but Kevin Austin and Braden Lindsay are guaranteed to be healthy all year. You know, they could stand on their heads and run their offense that way. And I would want Braden Lindsay, Kevin <laughs> Austin in the offense. So it's an easy answer. That first part of the question could have been anything different. <laughs> I want Austin and Lindsay. I want speed on the field. And, uh, and so that would be my answer. 
So would you rather have Notre Dame have five freshman offensive linemen, but Lindsey <laughs> – no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll tell you, given who the freshmen are, I, I, I could almost live with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that the latter part of that uh, hypothetical – of uh, Braden, Lindsey, and Kevin Austin being healthy, uh, being the more um, promising side of the equation there. I, if I'm Tommy Reese, I'd take that and make sure my best players are on the field. And then that makes my life a lot easier as a, as a play caller. So um, I think uh, that would be what I would choose. Um, now I think he could certainly come up with things to do if those guys aren't healthy, but I think that would be the, the optimal uh, situation. Next question is from Elliot Pierce at Irish Cowboy 13. Who the bleep is going to start at cornerback? Anyone in the transfer portal that we're looking at? Any youngsters making a splash in spring practice? Well, you know, the one thing that Mike Mickens had a track record of as a player and as a coach at Cincinnati was getting guys, including himself, ready to play early in their careers and be effective early in their careers. So I think that's a good thing. I would think Clarence Lewis would be one of them. I mean, I think he played well enough last year. Right. And where you'd say, okay, this this is a guy we can count on. Um, then <laughs> then you start to kind of sift through there. And I, I, I'd say certainly it could be a grad transfer. I would be looking at that market to see if there is – a way to upgrade your team and have a, have a starter, but you have a lot of good young guys. I mean, Bracey is confusing and I want to ask BK about him. Actually, I think I'm going to ask Brian about the cornerbacks. So stay tuned for Sunday story <laughs> or Saturday night story, because I will be asking these kind of questions, but Bracey kind of what was a wall the second half of the season. I think uh, uh, Philip Riley is a possibility. Kim Hart, if they want to have a big corner, you know, he looked good in that one spring practice. I was looking forward to seeing, and I think, I think if he had had a normal spring, they may have used him more rotating with um, McLeod last year. Uh, and then I would not rule out somebody that did what um, Clarence Lewis did. And that's come in June and be able to get the starting spot because I love chance Tucker. And I really, I'm intrigued by Jojo Johnson's speed. He doesn't have the size, but he's got elite speed. And Tucker has elite speed, has track speed, and he's put on weight. You know, he was 160 or 165 when he signed. He's playing at 185 this spring and looking pretty good for Crespi out in California. So I just I've named just almost everybody, but Caleb offered on the <laughs> roster. <laughs> yeah, what did, Henderson. what did he say about you? What did those guys say about your mom to prevent them from being <laughs> to, from being included on your list? What did they do? Yeah, no, I think it's wide open. I understand that the concern and the question. I don't know that we have good answers to that to to the problem there yet. I, Nick McLeod did speak highly of Cam Hart uh, last week during pro day when he was asked. Uh, to give sort of a, a scouting report on who an up and coming cornerback would be. Um, so maybe that, maybe he's an option there. Um, I agree with you. I like the cor cornerback recruits that are, that are freshmen this year, whether it's Philip Riley and Ryan Barnes um, that are already enrolled or um, Chance Tucker and Jojo Johnson coming in the fall. Um, I like Chance Tucker a lot too. I, I, it, I had Chance Tucker and Ryan Barnes both on like the back end of my top, personal top 10 of the class. So I think they both could have chances to compete as freshmen. 
And I think Philip Riley could too. I think he'd be in my own personal rankings. He was just like a little bit below those guys. But um, I, I, so I think that Mike Mickens could certainly turn one of those guys into a player. I, I mean, I do want to see what Ramon Henderson and Caleb Offord look like. I, I liked Clarence Lewis the best out of that group and um, somehow was able to be proven right as when he was a freshman. Um, so I, I think, uh, I don't know that there are answers. The, the transfer portal, I, I took another look at it today. There's not a lot of guys uh, available that haven't committed elsewhere right now. Um, there certainly will be more added to the by the day um, in terms of cornerbacks. Um, so I, I don't think they're, they've closed the door on that option yet. I imagine they'll keep keep looking both at cornerback and safety. And while, while I'm thinking of it, Tyke Smith, the guy that we talked about last week, as someone asked us about West Virginia safety, he ended up committing to Georgia uh, shortly after we recorded our podcast. So he is not an option for Notre Dame. Next question is from at they call me Cass. If you could have one former player from that from the past five years that went undrafted join the 2021 team, who would it be and why? Well, you know, before I kind of looked up to see who wasn't drafted and who was good, <laughs> Cody Riggs came to mind, but he just misses that five-year window. Because right. I thought he would be a nice starting cornerback. Um, so then I came up with four guys. I came up with Romeo Acora. Tavon Coney, Alex Bars, and Jalen Elliott. And I would say out of those guys, gosh, it's hard not to pick Romeo. I want to pick Coney, but I think I have to pick Romeo. If you pair him with on one side with Foskey and uh, and you can move My- Meyer and Tagovailoa Mosa back to his old spot, I, I guess I want to pick uh, based on – just he's the best player out of those guys. Coney, I think would would really be nice with to pair with Drew White in the interior. Right. Uh, but I'm gonna go with Romeo. Yeah, of course I I'm making this more complicated than it needs to be. Um, if we were because like, are we getting the current NFL versions of them? Like, are we getting Romeo Quara at whatever age he is now? Or are we getting them as a, if they were like a senior in college still? So like if, if you're getting I'm him going now, with a senior in college, if you're getting him now, I think you have to take Romeo. I mean, he's he's getting paid a lot of money to do do impressive things. In the Remember, NFL. He, he was young, though. He showed up here at 16. Right. Yeah. And he could have used old. an extra he could have used an extra year at Notre Dame, yeah. but he didn't have the chance because he played as a freshman. And that was before. I'm not sure how many games he played, but that was before the four game redshirt rule was even in existence. So. Um, he didn't. He wasn't able to play for a fifth he's year. Probably only twenty one now. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty. Young. But he's not that old. I mean, seriously, he was sixteen oh. when he started here. Yeah. So, so I, I think he's he's the best NFL player of the past five years that was undrafted. If we were getting the college versions, like you were talking about, I I would I would lean with more towards like needs, like Jalen Elliott or Cole Luke. I think would be towards the top of that list. Um, and Alex Bars, those are the three guys that came to mind immediately to me. I think I think I I guess I should say four because I would include Romeo in that list if I was trying to get, go at guys besides Romeo. And I, I'm not sure which of those guys I would choose because I feel like they're all at positions of positions of need. And I'm not sure. I, I guess to, to get to see Alex Bars play a healthy senior season um, or last season at Notre Dame that would that would be that would be cool. And I certainly would be welcome on a Notre Dame offensive line that's. That looks different in just about every clip that you see of the in spring practice. They have all kinds of combinations going out there um, to to make sure that uh, they're finding out who the best five are. And I'd welcome going to the supermarket and seeing him pushing a 
dog around in his shopping cart. <laughs> of course. Uh, next one we have is from Dougie Mc- at Dougie McCray one. If you could add a former ND recruit who is still in college football from recent years to the current roster, who would it be? Okay. I don't know that I did this one right because I, I assumed he was talking about guys that decommitted out of the class in the last five years. I'm not sure that he was specific to that because I think he did he did send me examples and one of them was uh, Nick Petit Friere, who was off the line who committed to Ohio State, who was never actually committed to Notre Dame. So I think we could have picked anyone that, I mean, probably someone that had Notre Dame had a realistic chance with, not like just like the best player in any of the past five classes. See, and the, I, I'm not sure who they had the realistic chances with. Right. I don't know recruiting. I'll, I'll, I have options for that, so you go ahead. Okay, and go so I'll do the team. I'll do the decommits, and I have to cheat a little bit because there are only ten of them. And two of them are in the draft this year. One of them came out early and one of them played his four years. I'd either take Paulson to Debo. That would be number one. But Pete Warner ended up being a really good linebacker for Ohio State. Um, the only guy that still has eligibility that's still playing, I mean, again, there's there weren't a lot of decommitments in the last five years, is Kalen Gervin, I guess, at cornerback yeah. but I'm not sure if he's better than what they have right now yeah he hasn't been like a full-time starter for them I don't think and uh I don't, but certainly well, in well, they, they didn't play a full-time season last year <laughs> yeah that's he true. started six games last year so <laughs> they only played a few <laughs> that's true um in terms of guys that were maybe ta- that were targets that their name should have had a better chance with or could have landed um, I think Nick Nick Petit Friere, the offensive lineman, offensive tackle. I think he was a good suggestion. Um, wide receiver David Bell at Purdue is is great. Um, Notre Dame never really got too far in that recruitment, or I, I never really had, felt like Notre Dame had much of a chance there. I'm not really sure why that ended up, but he would be he would look great on in a Notre Dame jersey right now. Another guy from Purdue, George Karloftis. Um, that was a the guy they were in on early, and he just opted to go to to Purdue. Um, if we want to talk about corners, Kyler Gordon, a guy from at Washington, that would be probably a guy that uh, I would pick. So if I had to pick one, I would probably go David Bell because I just think he's a really good player. And certainly Notre Dame needs a receiver like him, but he's been he's been pretty good. Um, and, and I think uh, it would look good in any kind of offense. So I, I would probably pick him just because I think he's been probably the most impressive. Although George Karloftis has done very good things at Purdue as well. I would probably go with David Bell. Next question is from Christian Bogan at C underscore Bogan 1989. Adi and Dalen Hayes were fun to watch last year. However, I'm excited to watch our edge guys this year. I think the talent can be more disruptive than in previous years. What are your thoughts on our edge rushers and defensive line in general? Well, Notre Dame is stacked in the interior defensive line. That's why they could play around with moving a multiple year starter and Myron Tagovailoa Mosa outside. I mean, there's so much good talent coming up and they've, they've stacked it class after class after class. So it's, they're in a good place there. I love Isaiah Foskey. I've loved him from the beginning. And I mean, his playing style and his (laughs) talent. Um, Botello, I've, I think he's either going to be a star or he's going to be a transfer at some point. I, I just think, and the fact that he's still here, I think is is a sign that he's probably going to get it because if he can add discipline to that raw, violent, you know, way he plays football, whew. So I, I like those guys. I, I like Justin Adam Alola a lot on the 
on the other end. Again, I need to see Myron play that end before I get real excited about that. So, uh, but again, I, I remember the reason Myron and Kurt Heinisch had to play as freshmen and, and not very touted freshmen, they weren't supposed to be plug and play players is because Notre Dame was very thin. So they've really built that, that interior defensive line into something kind of special. Yeah. I think, uh, there's a possibility that this defensive line could be more disruptive, both because of ability and scheme. Um, I think it, it made sense that made some sense that Myron moved outside because I think their defensive tackle was probably the deepest position they have on the, on the defensive line. Um, so I, I, I like you, I, I'm, I still want to see what Myron looks like in that position and what they're asking him to do um, and how he adjusts to that before I feel really confident about that. Um, I think um I don't, I don't know that because I'm just not sure how much I love him as a pass rusher out there. Um, and But maybe on passing downs, they slide him back inside and Justin comes in on pass rushing downs or they flip Foskey over to strong side defensive end and bring Botello in. Botello in. Um, so there's options there. Um, I think Botello has a really high ceiling. So um, they certainly have, I mean, at least two deep at each position that I feel pretty good about. Um, so I, 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 I mean, I'm very interested in seeing how, how they look this year and, and what, kind of different things are being asked to do with Marcus Freeman um, leading the defense. Last question we have is from at BFRA underscore Marie. Last week it was said that Houston Griffith would likely be gone after this year. Wouldn't it be advantageous for both him and Notre Dame to use his COVID exemption? What other players in his class might benefit themselves and ND by using the COVID exemption? I think it's nice to have, I think the one thing that, the reason why you see them recruiting what's going to be a fairly large 2022 class is they're kind of counting on not using a lot of COVID exemptions, very, very seldom. So that kids will just basically cycle through. Now, a lot of, um, a lot of kids in that 2018 class have redshirted. So they've already got a redshirt year on top of the COVID year. Um, I I'd say if Houston made significant strides and you thought, okay, there, that he could really improve his draft stock, then maybe it's worth him coming back. But I think if he had a breakthrough season, he'd want to just cash that in and move on. And then, you know, there's not a lot of guys that didn't redshirt. you know, some of them are Mawala and um, Jason, Adam, Alola, Bauer, Simon, and Bracey. And, and for a lot of those guys, again, they're going to have to have that kind of intermediary year where they're, they're not so good that they're going to get drafted, but they put themselves in a position to get there. And then maybe it makes sense. But, you know, I, I don't know that any of those positions you're like, well, there's kind of a dearth of talent behind them. Hopefully they come back. You know, so I, again, I just don't know that it makes sense for Notre Dame, especially with the way they're recruiting on the defensive side of the ball, they're, they've got some incredible prospects they're looking at and they're getting a strong look from for both the 2022 and 2023 classes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure that a lot of guys will end up using that. I think we've talked about it before. It's just asking guys to be in college for a long time. And they, they uh, one of those years wasn't exactly the most fun year, even though the, the team played well. It wasn't exactly a, your typical college year so. I think I think guys will want to move on if whether they uh, had a great year or not. Um, 
And so I, I just don't think that, and obviously, like you mentioned, there aren't a lot of candidates in that class um, that they need to use a COVID exemption on next season. Um, so I think he could, I think it's a possibility for Houston, but he was already a guy that was considering leaving um, after this past season. So if, if he doesn't have a great year um, and it's not good enough to put him in the NFL draft, how, how, how much does he really want to be at Notre Dame another year? I'm not, I'm not really sure. So I think uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. I, it's, it's a tough game. And I'm, I'm sure the coaches uh, probably get headaches trying to figure out how this is all going to play out and how to, how to plan ahead for all this, because it's certainly not an easy thing to figure out. I can't imagine. I mean, the kids probably don't really know. And I mean, most kids, most kids don't want to be in school for five years. I mean, it's only, it's, it's, it usually only happens if they feel like they need to do it. It's not something that they want to do. Um, so I, I just, I think that's something we have to sort of keep in mind when we talk about the COVID exemptions. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week for another episode. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for your Notre Dame spring football coverage needs. <laughs>